Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week saw another transition at the top of the National Park Service as Acting Director David Vela announced his departure. We also reported on fears at construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall through Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument is doing irreparable harm to Quito Baquito Springs. We also reported that Acadia National Park will test its reservation system later this fall and that the fruit harvest at Capitol Reef National Park in Utah will be disappointing because of a cold snap back in April. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. An early detection of a wildland fire in Denali National Park back in June brings to light how enhanced satellite technology is catching smaller fires sooner, providing better detail and more accurate fire predictions and assessments. As a result, fire managers in the national park system are better able to determine needed actions and resources to meet the unique conditions of Alaska's landscape. The traveler's Lynn Riddick spoke with two experts, Alaska fire analyst Robert Zeke-Zeal about this satellite technology, and Larry Weddle, National Park Service fire management officer for the Alaska Western Area and Denali Park and Preserve on how the season peaked without much drama this year. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Robert Zeke Zeal is a fire analyst with the Alaska Fire Science Consortium. He has an extensive background in fire assessment, fire modeling, and training. He's authored many publications on wildland fire management, ranging from fire behavior and fuels to preparedness and response. He's joining me today from Marquette, Michigan, where he works remotely much of the time. Hi, Zeke. Welcome to The Traveler. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Alaska is a huge landmass with many different fire management agencies working together. Still, wildland fire detection is a huge challenge. You were one of the people involved in meeting that challenge. You work with the consortium to make sense of fire detection science information that comes across your desk. I want to ask you about that work and then, of course, about some specific satellite detection technology that is very exciting to folks in fire science and fire management across the state and was particularly noteworthy to officials in Denali National Park. But first, would you give us an idea of the scale of wildland fires in Alaska? What's Alaska up against in the management of these fires? Alaska's fire seasons are actually uh, quite variable, that uh, while we have 
five of the last 16 years burned the majority of acres for the entire United States. Uh, this year in particular, our acreage is quite low. We can have uh, extreme seasons with hot weather and dry weather uh, that promote both ignitions uh, and long duration fires. And then years like this one, we can have some fire activity and uh, then rains tend to shut that activity off early. Is it still early in the season? Uh, it could be. Uh, in, a, in a big year, we could have fires burning into August. But typically, our peak season is from the middle of June until about the middle of July when we start seeing some rains come in. So we really are at the tail end of our peak season. And with the rains we've had, we don't anticipate an extended drought-driven kind of season. You have described yourself as a power user of active fire detection data. Would you explain that and tell us about the work you're tasked with as part of the Alaska Fire Science Consortium? Well, I started uh, doing this uh, actually at the recommendation of uh, one of the Park Service employees back in 2013. While these active fire detections have been around for quite some time, that even early satellites from the uh, early 80s, uh, the AVHRR satellites, would produce these active fire detections, although they were fewer uh, and less precise. But uh, really, beginning in 2001 and 2002 with the MODIS satellites, these detections began to produce real-time information, near real-time information, for where fires were burning uh, and how hot, how active they were. This uh, kind of information really helped decision makers in a place like Alaska, where many of the fires are very remote and hard to uh, get reported and hard to see once they're burning. That, that technology has served us very well uh, in over many years since that 2001, 2002 date when the two satellites went up. And we uh, began to recognize that we could use that uh, location information uh, and date and time information to more precisely identify when things were happening. Now in 2014, they launched the next generation of these uh, satellites that have this fire detecting capability. Uh, they're called VIRS uh, sensors, uh, and they put one up in 2014 and another up in 2017. Uh, and these two satellites really have succeeded uh, the MODIS satellite in active fire detections. And we continue to use them to identify where fires uh, are starting, where fires are burning actively, uh, and actually are beginning to be able to detect how they're moving. And just to give a little bit more uh, background on those satellites, so for 20 years, active fire detection has been possible from the two weather satellites, Terra and Aqua, that are both equipped with the MODIS instrumentation. And MODIS is an acronym for Moderate Resolution Imaging Spectroradiometer. And these satellites are polar orbiters. That means they pass north to south and south to north over the equator twice a day. And now enter what you were describing, satellites um, designed to replace MODIS. These newer ones have the VIRS instrumentation, and VIRS is short for Visible Infrared Imaging Radiometer Suite. So you were talking a little bit about how this VIRS system makes fire detection better faster and more suitable to Alaska's needs. 
Give us a little bit more of a comparison of the benefits of the VIRS system over MODIS. The MODIS system uh, was, as I said, a, a very, very valuable addition to fire managers in Alaska. But we noticed that when these detections would occur, that some of the detections were misplaced, uh, not a terrible large distance away from probably where the fire was actually active, but enough that you got some distortion about where the fires actually were. It, it was not a, a, it was not possible to accurately map the fire perimeter from these detections. Uh, the VIRS satellite uh, does actually a, a couple of things uh, that while it occupies a similar polar orbit, uh, these two satellites uh, you know, follow over the poles and uh, go uh, north to south uh, across the uh, earth and then back up to the top from uh, the South Pole to North. The thing that they do is that they have designed the VIRS satellites so that they have uh, a wider swath width. In other words, the camera can see farther side to side than the MODIS could, uh, which allows them to actually have more overlap and you get more partial imagery in a place like Alaska uh, where those orbits actually overlap even more. The, the additional effort that they made to improve the accuracy of its fire detecting capability is it made it to uh, have more imaging eyes, so to speak, more pixels, more squares in the, each of those swaths that it uh, looks side to side in. Uh, and when it gets further out to the sides, it actually individualizes those pixels so that you don't lose the accuracy that you had when you were looking more straight down from the satellite. So those side-looking images that you get, is that similar to, say, if you're doing a Google search of an address and you can skew the image to see different angles um, versus just straight down? That's correct. Uh, and if you do that, if you tip that Google image, you do see distortions. Uh, and that uh, the VIR satellite has designed this capacity to reduce, if not eliminate, the distortions that you have at the, the edges of what you can see. And can you explain the resolution comparison between the MODIS and the VIRS images? Well, the MODIS imagery, uh, actually, each one of those pixels that I described is one kilometer in size on a side. That's uh, six-tenths of a mile on a side. So it's a fairly coarse image, but when you're looking at an area the size of Alaska, you still see quite a bit of detail. The, uh, the VIRS satellite actually designed two resolutions into its system. Uh, one of them at 750 meters is designed to sort of be compatible with the MODIS uh, detections and imagery. Uh, and then it designed a separate system at a higher resolution, 375 meter pixels. Uh, and so that produces almost eight pixels for every one MODIS pixel. Uh, it, it increases the resolution. Uh, it allows you to see things like rivers and uh, forest cover in more detail. And it also gives you more pixels, allowing you to see fire movement as well as fire location. The experience of uh, detecting these fires with satellites is relatively new. And I think that we'll find 
that it becomes increasingly important. While our VIR satellites go over you know, uh, two times a day, and there are two satellites, so we get four overpasses a day. And with that overlap, some areas might be seen several times more. You know, so we are seeing fires and detecting fires in their locations that we might not have uh, in the past. And, you know, uh, though we're far enough north that it doesn't help us, there's an even newer satellite that goes our satellites. Uh, there's two of them. They are geostationary satellites over the equator that look at the western part of the U.S. and the eastern part of the U.S. Those satellites are looking at the landscape below them constantly and that we're finding that those satellites are actually able to detect fires automatically uh, and alert people monitoring those workstations about the prospect of that fire. And they're finding in some places they're able to actually detect and report fires ahead of even the public that uh, might have reported them in the past. VIRS has safety implications as well because it enables less risk to pilots and firefighters. Can you explain why? Well, before these uh, detections came into play, the main system uh, in a place like Alaska, again, uh, but really in many parts of the U.S., uh, the Western U.S. as well, fire detection was accomplished with aircraft flying over large areas uh, looking for smokes uh, from fire towers. Uh, where people would be uh, stationed during the peak season to look for smokes uh, and help triangulate their locations. From reports from the general public, if the fire's in their backyard, uh, they're certainly in a position to report it very quickly and and very early. But uh, with remote fires, these uh, uh, detections, especially the VIRS detections with the greater accuracy, uh, the greater frequency, and the ability to see these fires when they're smaller and less intense allows us to spot and identify these fires earlier than we were able to with the MODIS satellite. Tell me more about the consortium. Um, What organizations and people are part of that? The Joint Fire Science Program, part of the uh, uh, federal interagency effort, was developed to produce research specifically related to fire management questions. As a part of that, they uh, evaluated their work and they found that research was not being implemented, adopted, used uh, as they would have uh, hoped. They they looked and talked about different solutions and designed a system of these uh, fire science consortium, a network of them uh, that covers the entire country that I uh, am a a member of the Alaska Fire Science Consortium. Earlier in uh, the decade uh, that just passed from 2010 to 2012, I was a member of the Great Lakes, the Lake States Fire Science Consortium. Uh, And the purpose of these consortia are to take that uh, valuable research and put it into a form that at least introduces people to its concepts and, and procedures but hopefully uh, also to help fire management consider how they might adopt it. That as these consortia have been in place for 10 years or more, uh, that we have begun to look to participate more fully in both fire management and fire research, that we advocate, 
with uh, for fire management questions, and we uh, certainly uh, support and uh, help researchers understand and identify the problems that they're trying to answer. So these consortium uh, have, you know, a, a, a research leadership, a, a principal investigator uh, that leads the consortium, uh, but they also have uh, folks like myself who are maybe more operationally oriented uh, to help uh, interact with that management community. And we should add that the consortium is based at the International Arctic Research Center of the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And I think I find it actually one of the, the great honors uh, to participate in the Alaska Fire Science Consortium. Uh, the University of Alaska Fairbanks is one of the premier research institutions studying Arctic and far north questions. Uh, and, you know, sitting with those folks uh, when I get to uh, Fairbanks is a very heady experience. When fire science information comes across your desk, what do you do? What goes into a typical fire assessment? Well, if we're talking about a research tool or a research concept, those things are coming across uh, on a regular basis. We have folks doing research uh, about fire in the far north across Europe, you know, uh, that uh, there are large fires uh, going on in Siberia at this time. Folks from uh, Japan uh, are doing uh, research that uh, comes across our desk. Uh, and really, uh, the Canadians uh, are uh, our major partners uh, in managing far north lands, the boreal forest and tundra landscapes. Uh, and so we look at a variety of these outputs and we actually decide that some of them are of such value that we make personal contacts with fire managers. Some uh, are of more general interest and we need to put them in front of uh, large groups of folks. Uh, and, and others are uh, worth us putting effort into implementation ourselves. And we partner with uh, players both at the university and in the fire management community to find ways to fund and uh, develop tools based on the, the research that we find handed off to us. What do you think is the most fascinating part of the work that you do? There really are new questions every day that while people like to say that each fire is different, and it is, uh, that there is similarities uh, that allow you to bring what you've learned to bear on these new situations. I think that many folks struggle with uh, the concept of risk and how to apply that effectively. And the job I have in helping fire managers make decisions uh, with predictions that, you know, are uncertain is a, a challenging experience. And if you, you know, like to be challenged, if you like to uh, see a problem, devise a solution and see how it works out, Every fire assignment I go on is its own experimental opportunity. What are some of the biggest challenges you've faced? The fires in Alaska are not suppressed as aggressively as they are in the lower 48 states. And so we have many fires that are uh, burn as if they're uh, unimpeded. The information that we glean from those fires allows us to 
understand how fires burned under uh, natural conditions across a number of years. And I got that experience in space in 2015 that um, I was uh, confronted with a fire season that I was warned about, that they say when uh, you have lots of fire on the ground in Alaska, it's almost impossible to keep up with it. Uh, and in, in 2015, uh, we burned uh, over 5 million acres in the shortest period of any of the modern seasons. Uh, it was a, a huge challenge to have resources to even go and protect people and values uh, in front of these fires because they burn very aggressively. Uh, and being able to uh, provide information to those managers to help them understand which fires had posed the biggest problems uh, and the most immediate problems was a huge challenge that I'd never experienced before. When you get dispatched, when you personally get dispatched to um, a location of a fire as a fire analyst, you had a, a trip earlier this summer to a fire north of Fairbanks. What do you do when you're on the ground? How do you work with the team there? Well, so uh, these are some ancillary duties. Uh, I don't actually uh, participate in those duties formally as a member of the consortium, but I'm part of the incident management teams that are sent to make decisions and take actions to protect values at risk, to suppress the fires, uh, and to warn people uh, about the threats that they face. As a member of those teams, I am a wildfire analyst that uh, sometimes I analyze uh, the fire that might occur and, and, and behave tomorrow uh, and help prepare the crews to put themselves in the best position to be successful uh, in that. In other situations, I'm actually asked to uh, make longer term predictions. Where is this fire likely to go in the next three days? Or where might it go in the next two weeks? Uh, and in some cases, as earlier this summer I was asked to do in the Lake States, is to evaluate the potential for the remainder of the season. Uh, we have a variety of tools that we use to do those things. Some are very specific modeling tools. Others uh, require more you know, interpretation of general assessment products like drought indices uh, and to evaluate uh, historical fire activity uh, and the problems that have occurred you know, under similar circumstances to develop some idea of how things uh, might develop in the future. That range of products is pretty broad and the skills that folks like myself have to bring to it uh, is necessarily similarly broad. And I'd like to mention that you are a 2019 recipient of the Paul Gleason Lead by Example Award and that recognizes people who exemplify wildland fire leadership values and principles. So congratulations for that. Well, thank you. Uh, that um, There certainly uh, are a, a great group of folks that I work with, uh, and to be honored with that and the words that they wrote in support of that nomination was really gratifying. Alaska is a great laboratory for people that want to understand fire better. And with that, we get the interest from and the help from researchers that we might not have met otherwise. There's a, a real advantage to that. On the other hand, we really do struggle with 
information in Alaska, that uh, we are far enough from where information is generated and the tools that we have are maybe not as broad as they are uh, in other parts of the U.S. And so we find ourselves challenged with information sources, with uh, tools to uh, support decision-making, uh, and resources to do something about our fires. And so I, I think that it's really something that I give great credit to the people that uh, actually are trying to protect uh, Alaskans, trying to uh, you know, uh, limit the problems that are caused by fires while allowing them to burn uh, as they need to, uh, and you know, to uh, actually find new ways uh, of working effectively. Climate change, you know, looking to the future, to the near future, and how that's going to affect the landscape of Alaska. What's the discussion about managing that going forward? Well, without a question, uh, that uh, we see new extremes every year, new high temperatures uh, especially. Many of them occur in the winter, uh, and that certainly is changing our winter climate. But in a year like 2019, uh, you know, during uh, late June and early July, we saw uh, very extreme temperatures, very low precipitation totals, uh, and, it and lightning occurrence that uh, created fire on the landscape, producing, uh, you know, a level of activity that required a uh, reinforcement from the lower 48 uh, and a very concerted effort over a several week period of time just to stay up with the problem we had. Uh, so, you know, we, we not only anticipate climate change, we live with it in Alaska because uh, the changes are very much concentrated uh, at the high latitudes. We see changes in Alaska in part due to the fact that there's less ice uh, in the uh, oceans that uh, surround us on the north and west sides, uh, and that open water tends to keep the air temperatures warmer than we would expect uh, in the wintertime. That, in turn, allows our spring seasons to begin earlier and our fall seasons to extend longer. And we see that uh, with those extended seasons, more opportunity for fire activity that we have to manage carefully. What's a good website for seeing a visual of the current fire landscape in Alaska? There really are three websites that make it easy to view the fire landscape in Alaska. Uh, the first is one that's uh, available to the public. Uh, it's produced by the University of Alaska Fairbanks uh, and is part of the Scenarios Network for Alaska and Arctic Planning. They call it SNAP. Uh, and if you would uh, uh, Google SNAP, S-N-A-P, uh, and U-A-F for University of Alaska Fairbanks, it would come up. Uh, and among them, on that site, there's a variety of tools about Alaska's climate, about Alaska's landscape, and about Alaska's fire history. That on the site, you can look at the, the current year's active fires. You can see where there might be uh, active beers and lotus detections. Uh, you can see uh, information uh, related to those fires and how they're changing over time. That 
you know, operationally, fire managers use two different sites that are, you know, intended really for fire management use. Uh, that there's a, uh, a website uh, managed by the uh, Alaska Interagency Coordination Center that uh, maintains more detailed information, not only about the fires, but about the values at risk nearby, that shows where uh, lightning has been occurring, and you know, provides some background information about uh, resources uh, and incidents themselves. Uh, in addition to that, we have a fire weather uh, information site that uh, provides a great deal of detail about uh, the weather conditions under which fires are burning. It produces uh, fire danger indices for us, uh, and again, provides information for where the fires are, how they're burning from these uh, active detections from VIRS and MODIS satellites, uh, and where they are uh, potentially going to uh, burn actively. So those two sites provide the backbone of information that fire managers in Alaska use uh, to make decisions about active and emerging fires. Zeke, I'd like to thank you for your time today. I wish you continued success in your role with the Alaska Fire Science Consortium. Well, thank you very much. And after this short break, I'll continue the conversation about Alaska's wildfire landscape and the latest satellite technology with Larry Weddell. He's the fire management officer for the Alaska Western Area of the National Park Service. I'm Lynn Riddick for National Parks Traveler. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. For details about fire management in Denali National Park and Preserve, and how VIRS satellite technology is making a difference, I spoke with Larry Weddell, fire management officer for the park. 
Hi, Larry. How are you? Hello, Lynn. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Larry, I want to start by asking you, what's a typical wildfire season like in Denali National Park and Preserve? Well, it, it varies um, year by year. It's uh, the, the fuel system, the fire, the fire seasons in Alaska, highly sensitive to short-term drought systems. And so it's kind of hard to tell from year to year how is it going to be. Uh, uh, snow melt-off is one key factor about when the season's going to start. And then whether the monsoonal pattern that we typically have that sets in in uh, mid-July, whether that materializes or not also has a the impact on how long the season's going to happen. What are some of the worst seasons you've had? You know, we had a pretty big season in 2005. Uh, that was, I believe, the, we had the high power fire, which is the largest fire on record for Denali. We didn't have that many fires that year, but there was a very large fire. In 2009, we had a number of very large fires that burned uh, all around the park, uh, northwestern portion of the park. And that's where most of the fire activity occurs in, in Denali is the northwest portion. Um, a large chunk of the central and southeastern uh, portion of it is in rock and ice uh, above shrubline. And then, gosh, 15 was another huge year. We had super uh, high number of fires. Uh, only a handful got large, but we had large fires all around the edge. In the last probably couple decades, we've had a fair number of fairly active seasons. How does this season compare in the park so far with wildland fires? Oh, well above average. It's really hard to, to kind of compare season to season because we have the variability of our fire seasons is really quite high. Uh, we can have a super active fire seasons, maybe one fire that goes on for all summer long or maybe 10 fires that uh, go on for half the season. This year, it's been, we uh, had a pretty good snowfall, so it was a little bit late for the snow off, and, and that's usually when fires uh, have potential. Uh, most of the fires of Denali are driven by uh, lightning fires, and that's what we had this year. And so we've had a couple of lightning fires uh, go on. But then the monsoonal pattern kind of hit a little early, and, um, we have had, you know, nothing major for growth. We're well below the number of acres that we typically burn in a year. But again, that's a hard number to put your finger on just because of the variability. We can go from zero acres a year um, up to 120,000 acres in a single year. How do fire advisory and prediction data come to you? Well, we have a, so we have a statewide uh, weather briefing that we get every day at uh, 945. And that's broadcast uh, from the Alaska Interagency Coordination Center. We have a call-in number to it, and it's uh, done through the web because, you know, a lot of Alaska is very remote, and uh, we are going to spend a lot of requirement on IT. But we uh, communicate through that, so there's a briefing put on. We're able to ask questions at the end. But that's kind of the initial blush as far as getting the fire weather and any, if there's any fire danger notices going out at the time. And how do you coordinate efforts or actions from there uh, if you see something that is cause for concern? Yeah, so that, that kind of creates a, that's a, a question that's kind of a bigger story and requires a little bit of background. So in Alaska, when, as far as the Wildland Fire Organization came out, for the Department of Interior, the BLM Alaska Fire Service was, through, the, through policy, given uh, the responsibility for all operational control of fires uh, across the landscape of wildfires. 
And, and this was, there was a number of reasons. And one of those is, you know, cost savings, not duplicating resources. Uh, so having all the DOI agencies have their own uh, large suppression uh, programs. So the Park Service is considered uh, a jurisdictional agency in Alaska. So we carry all the functions of fire management. We're just not the primary and, and we're not in operational control of any ground activities that we're conducting on a wildfire. For us, that's uh, the BLM Alaska Fire Service uh, has most of Denali as far as under its operational control. So for Denali, if I get information, get some sort of intel that I think that there's something going on out there as far as a fire danger, number of lightning strikes or remote sensed information, I will contact uh, the appropriate protection agency. And for Denali, that's typically the BLM Alaska Fire Service Tanana Zone. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Bear Paw Mountain Fire. Um, in mid-June, Veers had measured a heat detection in the park, and the park was notified, and then apparently you coordinated with the Bureau of Land Management Alaska Fire Service. What happened from that point? What did you find out? Um, so, yeah, so we got a Veers detection. There's a couple tools for that. and One, we can just look at it right from the uh, Interagency Coordination Center's website. They have a mapping tool that uh, that's able to uh, broadcast or display that information. Well, we also get automated alerts. And so you can sign up for these automated alerts. And if you get beers or modus detections, these, these are uh, remote uh, sensed heat detections, they'll send us an email. And so that gives you a kind of heads up and then you can go look. In this case, we, we got the notification or I was looking at the web and noticed that there was a beer spot out there. And it had concern for me just simply because I, we had had a fire very near there earlier in the year and I was familiar with the ground and knew that there was a structure out there that had been designated for protection. And so for me, I, I gave uh, um, the duty officer a call for the Tanana zone and talked with him and he I'm pretty sure he was already aware of it um, at the time. And he had a detection flight scheduled to head south to look at the southern fires in the Tanana zone and he uh, added that to the schedule to uh, as far as his route for the detection flight to verify that it was a true a fire out there when that occurred that day. What was the size of the fire? Was it a cause for concern? What was your decision uh, once you got a you know, pretty good picture of what it was all about? So we found out it was about 400 acres in size. One of the things about the remote sensing is that it doesn't always detect um, you know, when a fire would start. It has to produce enough intensity in order to pick it up. So the fire could have been going on out there for a little bit longer than it was. So it, once, once we actually go out there and fly one of these uh, fires that have been detected by heat, you really know, never know what you're gonna get. In this one, it was uh, 400 acres, and it grew to about 700 acres in size. It did grow quite a bit, but, but you know, for, for uh, that particular part of Denali, where we have continuous fuels, getting to 700 acres is, is actually not very big. That's a fairly small fire. Fire analyst Zeke Zeal filled us in on many of the benefits of the VIR satellite technology. And it sounds like it has been a game changer for fire management in Denali because you were able to detect a relatively small fire. A big part of the remote sensing is uh, really important for Denali and, and for um, fire in Alaska as a whole. There's so few roads uh, in the in the fire in, in the interior of Alaska where there much of the fire occurs in the state, and we are heavily reliant upon detection aircraft, or at least historically, to detect these fires to find them. 
or private aircraft uh, calling in um, uh, smoke reports. So with this tool, it definitely opens up the, the window to detect fires earlier and also more frequently uh, detect them. And we have aircraft here at Denali that uh, will work in conjunction with the Tanana Zone to keep an eye on these fires. But having this, this tool available to us doesn't require us anymore to actually fly the fire on a regular basis to see what it's doing as it relates to any assets that we're attempting to protect out there. We can monitor the fire uh, remotely, particularly if, if uh, our asset that we're trying to protect is a ways away from the fire. But if it's close, then we, there's no substitution to actually looking at it and having eyes on it directly. Uh, if we do have a, a site that's close for protection, we will rely on aircraft and less so on the remote sensing fears technology. But if it's a long ways away, we'll spend, we'll definitely lean on to the uh, veers and, and actually not fly very often at all. The tools that we have for fire managers, uh, some of them are operational in real time. And, and Veers is one. Uh, Modus was its predecessor before that, and we still have Modus. Uh, but there's newer ones that are coming on. Um, as new, as uh, I, I think I'd mentioned in the email uh, that there's uh, imagery that we're able to manipulate online, uh, download, or actually not even download. You can manipulate it and highlight fires uh, and actually see the heat from those imagery um, those aren't necessarily real-time, but I imagine at some point they will be. But the, ex the expanding scope of, of remote sensing material is certainly changing the business of fire management. We, we can, at least for in Alaska, where a lot of the fires were able to manage as a natural process while simultaneously being able to protect assets that are out there, not being required to fly it all the time uh, by using remote sensing technologies is is it's pretty incredible. Tell me about your responsibilities with the other national parks in Alaska. What are the wildland fires looking like this season in some of those areas? It's kind of been slow. So I'm the um, Alaska Western Area Fire Management Officer for the Park Service and based out of Nally. And I have uh, six parks that I oversee fire management for, for the Park Service. Uh, Lake Clark is one of them. Denali, uh, Bering Land Bridge, uh, Cape Cruz and Stern, Kobuk Valley, and No Attack are the parks that I oversee. It's been a you know kind of average year for some, above average for others, and below average for others. So Lake Clark haven't had a fire yet this year. That's been great. Uh, even though they did come into conditions early in the year, they just didn't get any lightning uh, that caused anything early, and then they got the monsoonal pattern set in. We've uh, had no fires in Bering Land Bridge, uh, none in Kobuk Valley. We've had one in Cape Krusenstern, which is on the coast there, up there north of Kotzebue. Um, that park rarely gets fires, but uh, just uh, three years ago, or two years, uh, three years ago, I think we had five plus fires in Kobuk Valley. And, and from the 50-year record, we hadn't had a fire up there, hadn't had more than a, a dozen in that 50-year record. And we had like five plus uh, in 2018. So we had a fire in Kobuk Valley. Uh, or not, excuse me, not Quebec Valley, but in Cape Cruz and Stern. And then No Attack is a regular producer of fires. It's uh, There's something unique about that No Attack River Valley that uh, we, it gets lightning and it stays dry and, and we have fires every year. And so we had, I think, five fires in there this year. But that's about normal. Were you given information from the Veers uh, detection for some of those other fires? 
Absolutely. Uh, so for the one in, in, in Cape Cruz and Stern, that one, we didn't get a virus detection. Uh, it was only uh, 10 acres in size uh, when they found it. And then I think uh, that night, uh, the relative humidities came up quite a bit and it just stalled out it's, and it hasn't grown since. I think it's pretty much out. The, we did get virus detections for the majority of the fires that were detected in no attack were up there. And if we didn't get the initial detection, as far as, you know, knew when to fly to see if there was something there, we were able to monitor its growth through some of the beers activity. Have you been provided with any predictive reports for the rest of the season? Uh, what are you anticipating? Uh, there was an interesting phrase that the meteorologist uh, said yesterday. She didn't quite say it yet, but uh, she had a piece of cake with a, with a fork sitting right next to it. And from the meteorologist standpoint, uh, the way the weather pattern has set up and, and what it looks like the um, immediate future, she's uh, implying that we're getting ready to stick a fork into the fire season. It does not look like it's going to be, it's going to move into an, as far as an extended fire season. But I, I've got to kind of emphasize that the fires in Alaska are highly dependent on short-term drought systems. If the weather changes and it gets dry again, which in just a week, one week's uh, pattern of dry weather, we could certainly be back into a pattern of, of getting uh, new fires that start. But it's because we're later into the season, as we're getting towards the latter part of July, the chances of those fires actually being a significant problem are probably pretty low. Larry, thank you so much for your time today and giving us some insights on the latest fire management in Denali and some of the other parks there in Alaska. So please keep us posted. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate the interest and we will do that. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We also hope you'll consider identifying yourself as a National Parks Traveler when you're out and about in the National Park System. If you can support the Traveler with a donation of $50 or more, we'll send you a handsome 20-ounce double-wall insulated water bottle bearing a gorgeous Rebecca Latson photo of Grand Teton National Park, as well as National Parks Traveler's logo. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org to learn more and order your bottle. Next week, Lynn Riddick will be talking with Jacob Job, who manages the Colorado State University Listening Lab through the Sound and Light Ecology Team in Fort Collins, Colorado, as part of a research associate partnership with the National Park Service Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. He'll explain how he captures those amazing recordings of nature in the national parks. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com.
National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.